Well, good morning again, folks. Welcome to our message for today as we go into part five of our series of discovering what God's will is for our lives. Now, I can't recap everything, obviously, at this point, but we've seen that God's will for you starts with salvation. And then really everything from that is a response to what God has done in our lives. We, we become living sacrifices. We're going to live a life that reflects what we have, that what he has done for us and in us. But that can be hard and we struggle to do what God says. And so he turns around and says, well, you don't do it by yourself. I'll help you become spirit filled. And last time out, we talked about being sanctified because living a spirit filled life has, has a goal that will make us look more like God. And that points people to him. And that means more than acting just a certain way, but being transformed from the inside out. And that's more than just saying yes to God, but it means saying no to some of the other things that maybe we'd be tempted to as well. But what I want to do is perhaps build on that this morning uh, and by seeing that, well, how does that look when the culture and even the laws where we live start to push against what scripture wants? How does a Christian live and exist and influence the world around them? How can we be sanctified people in an unsanctified world? The answer is in 1 Peter, among other places, but that's where we're going to be starting today. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, we did a series in 1 Peter about three years ago, which is crazy how fast time is, but time seems to become a bit irrelevant now in lockdown. But if you've forgotten the background to this book or are new to the church, Peter is hiding in Rome under the noses uh, the nose of Emperor Nero. Uh, and it's a time when hostility was growing towards Christianity because of its influence and because of how it was kind of seeping through the empire. And um, Peter is writing to Christians who are getting badly treated because of their faith. And so first Peter is written from the belly of the beast, as it were, at a time where it was hard to be a Christian, but that it was also going to get harder. And so what this does is it makes first Peter a wonderful study in living a sanctified life in an unsanctified world and yet living a beautiful life, living in a way that we can convince people who started from opposing our faith to actually then sharing it in our faith. And it's a worthwhile study then for Christians at any stage, but it's really good for new Christians because you maybe are getting ready to come out of furlough and into an office and a job or a context when you're gonna to have to explain, well, look, here's what happened to me while I was in lockdown. Here's why my life looks different now. Because they're going to assume that because you're a Christian, you're going to become preachy or condescending or pushy. But actually, Scripture says, no, live beautifully. Draw people in and then explain the difference that Christ has made or, or give a reason for the hope that is in you. And this part of Peter is very much focused on them on how we relate to other people. There's a popular saying that goes, uh, dance like nobody's watching. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about the negative people in your life. Just do your own thing. Be carefree. It is a nice thought. It's definitely appealing. But it does go against the grain when it comes to biblical teaching. Peter's talking to Christians who are struggling because of how people are responding to their faith in Jesus. And perhaps the easiest thing to be, to do, to say would be, look, don't worry about those guys. You keep on being you. Just ignore them all. Forget those other guys. Just dance like nobody's watching. But Peter has been trying to comfort them and encourage them that even though it can be hard to live for Jesus sometimes, it is 
worth it. And here he wants to remind them of the mission of the church still stands, even in difficult times. The call of the church, and the church is the people, the call for every Christian is to go into the world and make disciples. It's to be a distinctive community that points people to Jesus. We are to be his ambassadors. We are to be a distinctive community, a spirit-filled, sanctified people, which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks now, that despite how the world treats us, we're still to live in a way that makes Christ look attractive and inviting to the, even to those who would oppress us. And so the summary of the rest of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 really is that simple thrust. Remember, in all you do, with the people and, and all how they treat you and what they consciously think or subconsciously think about Christianity or whatever, remember that our response to them is how we live our lives. And so the next two verses, we'll, we'll put everything in context. So we'll not read everything for the sake of time, but it forms really three pictures that Peter wants to use which is the Christian as a good citizen, the Christian as a good employee, and number three in chapter three is the Christian as a good spouse. We're only going to be doing the first one today. And the wider context of his message from Peter is, look, how we live matters. So don't dance like nobody's watching. Live beautifully and live and love like everyone is watching because that's how we prove the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of grace. Now, does anyone remember the film Lethal Weapon 2? It's the one where the bad guy's from South Africa and he's doing bad guy stuff like, you know, smuggling diamonds and murder. And they can never get him because, as he likes to point out throughout the film, he's got diplomatic immunity. And so because he hides behind his official status as a diplomat, he thinks that he's above the law, beyond the law, because, hey, I'm not American. Your laws don't apply to me. Now, why did I mention a film that's almost 30 years old? Because we too are ambassadors on this earth. We are here to represent the kingdom of God among the self-made kingdoms of this world. We're here to show them the supreme value of knowing God and living for him. So how we live matters. What we say matters. We can't just say, sorry, diplomatic immunity. I belong to Christ. Now, your laws don't apply to me. You can't tell me what to do. Forget you guys. I'm going to dance like nobody's watching. I've seen it with some churches and how they've responded even to the coronavirus. Some have just ignored the lockdown. Well, that can't apply to us. We've got God on our side. We're never going to shut our doors. And guess what? People got sick. That attitude is not only foolish, but it's unbiblical. And that makes it sinful. That's why we as elders in AEC want to carefully consider the government's advice before making decisions as how we can return because we want to walk humbly and submissively under our government's authority. We're not being political, we're being biblical. We want to be good citizens and we want to live like people are watching. We may not be popular because we believe in Jesus, but we are to live as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and we want to represent heaven while on earth. So let's read verse 12 of First um, Peter 2. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so when they speak evil against... Uh, when they... Sorry. Keep your conduct among you as, among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so when they say, oh, you're against women, or you're against progress, or you're against the gay community because you're terrible people and because they all know the things that we're against. When they call us evildoers, Live so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord, 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter here is telling us that as ambassadors, don't be living in a way that you think diplomatic immunity makes you above the law. That if we don't agree with the government, then we can just do whatever we want regardless. We have to live like people are watching. Why? Because that's how we will win them. Live so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. It's that spirit-filled, sanctified life we've been talking about. He doesn't say have lots of open-air meetings and really get in their faces. He doesn't say hand out tracts and preach at them and protest and fight against the system. He's saying, look, each and every day, live out godly lives in front of them so that they may glorify God. So what deeds will bring people to glorify God? Well, the first one he says is be good citizens. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's the emperor or governors. Do it for the Lord. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. So here's our key verse. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom or your diplomatic immunity as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Now, remember the context where, Paul's, where Peter is coming from. Peter's writing from Rome, the centre of the Roman Empire, led by Emperor Nero, who was an evil man, who in the space of a few months will set fire to the city of Rome and burn it to the ground, blame the Christians and then set fire to them and use them as human torches and feed others to the lions for entertainment. He would crucify Peter upside down, but only after he first made him watch his own wife die. Peter writes... We are to honour this man. We're talking about an emperor who demanded not only to be obeyed, but to be worshipped. Peter says, we are servants of God. We fear God. We worship only him. But for God's sake, we will honour and respect the emperor. So should Christians be wildly patriotic, full of nationalist or unionist zeal, especially if we're actually belonging to a different kingdom? Should we complain about the amount of tax we pay? Should we try and get out of paying taxes if we can? Should we try and claim as many benefits as we can? Should we be involved politically? Should we abstain totally? Should we still honour the leaders even if they're passing ungodly laws? We'll get to that. But before we start talking about what we can do as good citizens, let's talk about our attitude as good citizens. Peter says, regardless of the people in the offices of authority over us, we submit and respect the office. Even if we disagree with the people who hold the office, we may not like their policies, but we must submit to them. Even as citizens of another kingdom, we don't have diplomatic immunity to just go and do our own thing. We must submit to their authority. This is the will of God. And perhaps Northern Ireland of all places, politics will either create fierce opinions or will cause total disengagement. Peter reminds us, whoever the politician respect them because this is God's will they are in power because God has sovereignly put them there whether it's Sinn Féin DUP Alliance whoever God brought them to this place the wrong election result in our minds will not bring hell on earth any more than a good one was going to bring heaven down our leaders are simply humans who've been put into positions by the authority of a sovereign God 
So therefore they're to enjoy our submission and our respect, but they don't get our worship. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad in your opinion. Whether you voted for them or not, we submit to the authorities of the land, whether they are police officers, whether they are local council, whether they be the traffic speed laws. Now, I, I know no one listening is interested in worshipping Boris or Arling, nor are they likely to demand that like Nero did. But it could, could it be possible that we do worship politics in Northern Ireland? And by that, I mean, we put a disproportionate amount of time and money at the altar of a political party or color or cause. I've seen plenty of Christian men get more passionate about the DUP than they ever did about God. Now, they'll put pontificate about both in equal measures. I've seen them shouting at others on the campaign trail and then at the weekend they're trying to share the gospel with them. And one man in particular that I think about he didn't see his political behaviour as a hindrance to the gospel until a Catholic neighbour pointed out to him and says, hold on, how come yesterday you were saying that you hate me and that we're up to no good and my community can't be trusted and then you're saying that you love me today as a brother? He, he saw the two as distinct in his mind, but that's not how the neighbour saw it. So we respect and we honour God put our politicians there, but let's not worship at that altar. Let's not allow them to become the most important thing. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. It says, Freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, nor is it freedom from responsibility. Rather, we're to use our freedom, our ambassadorial role, to do good. Something repeats in those other two examples of being good employees and good spouses. Let me show you Jeremiah 29. Now, I know everyone knows verse 11. I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and all the rest of it. But just before that, drop down to verse 7. We're given the context for that verse. Verse 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So God's saying, look, I know you're in exile. I know it's not really home in the same way that heaven is really our home. I know this is not really home for you, but I've put you here for a reason. So be a blessing where you are, for I know the thoughts that I have towards you. See, so yes, the Christian home is heaven. Yet as we act and live as ambassadors for God here, we must be good citizens and seek the welfare of the city of the nation that we live in. We must obey the laws of the land and seek the good of the city by doing good in the city or town or village or whatever it happens to be for you. Remember the story of Daniel and his friends when they were first singled out by the king's men as the best and the brightest of the slaves taken away? Daniel's friends took all they could get. They got new names, new clothes, new education. And probably some people didn't like them for that. I'm sure some of the people who didn't get those perks said all kinds of things about them for selling out and forgetting where they came from. And yet when it came to eating the food that had been sacrificed to idols, Daniel's friend says, look, this is where we're drawing the line. But again, when you read Daniel, they didn't protest. They didn't make a scene. They, they took the servant aside and said to him quietly, look, we don't want to get any, cause any trouble here, but just give us water and vegetables for 10 days. Let's go from there. See, they didn't delight in rebelliousness. They didn't cause a scene. They acted considerably to those around them. They achieved what they needed to with minimal conflict and in doing so earned the trust of that servant. See, they worshipped God, but they respected and honoured the godless authorities over them. 
God comes first, but that doesn't entitle you to be a jerk to the people around you just because they disagree. Now, that's huge for Peter to teach this because the authorities will take his life. So it's not a small thing, but look at what he says in verse 17. He says, keep on honouring everyone. Keep on respecting the brotherhood. Keep on fearing God, but keep on honouring the emperor, regardless of whether you think he deserves it or not. Protesting something like the recent abortion legislation is vital. We need to show the politicians that the will of the people is not being democratically represented. They need to feel the weight of that. But we do it peacefully. We do it faithfully. We do it respectfully. But there has to be more than just that. We need to educate people to explain why we feel so strongly on those issues. If we protest, protest racism, for example, okay, great. Let's not be breaking social distancing rules as we do so. But okay, what then? Well, if we're against racism, then why are we not engaged in immigrant welfare? If we are against racism, why not get involved with groups like The Link here in Ard and offer yourself to help outsiders so that they feel like they have a new home? Try learning some of their language. Speak to an immigrant in their own language. A hello, a good morning. Taking that time will mean so much. It will mean that those who are victims of racist behaviour feel like they are being made welcome by Christians in their neighbourhood. If you protest abortion, brilliant. But are you educated in arguments why life is still precious, even when the mother has been raped? Or, or if the child is going to be disabled? Or what about frozen embryos and IVF treatment? If life matters and it begins at that moment of conception, are you willing to adopt and foster or try and see that if you can give respite to someone at the weekend? Because if we say life matters, then we can't just stand back and allow the fostering system to crumble. See, the Christian's call is to do more than just offer thoughts and prayers, to speak without acting. And we'll see in a few minutes, God looks very dimly on such hypocrisy. Love is a verb as far as God is concerned. It's a doing word. There's a biblical command in Proverbs 31, verse 8, which says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. But then listen to the call to action. The second verb in that verse says, yes, speak up, but also ensure justice for those being crushed. Speaking up here means to be engaged in their individual court case. Speak in a way that provokes progress and change. Speak meaningfully into it. It means petition local MPs and councils. It means showing up to the open forums and being heard. In Amos 5 verses 7 to 12, God is calling out the ruling bodies, saying, look, you've twisted justice. You've made it a bitterness for the oppressed. You're trampling down the poor and stealing grain and setting the rent too high. You're taking bribes and don't give the poor their day in court. So that's, that's the system. Maybe that was their argument. But in the same chapter, verses 21 to 24, we read this. Verse 21. I hate all your show and pretense. This is God speaking. I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps instead. I want to see a mighty flood of justice. An endless river of righteous living. Now that's really strong language for in Amos 5. I hate your pretense and hypocrisy. You act all religious, but all week your actions have shown that you don't really care. So I hate your church services. I hate your religious services because you put on this show 
that if you really knew me, if you really were interested in what I cared about, you'd know that I hate injustice. So no, I don't accept your offerings. No, I don't accept your worship. No, I don't accept it all. I'm not going to bless you for living like this. I want to see an endless river of righteous living. And so the message is clear. Who are we really if we have no clear interest in justice in our society? Because we're certainly not being godly. Which means, are we really spirit-filled? Are we really sanctified? Because looking like we care isn't the same as really caring. Caring only when it's convenient isn't really caring. But let's go to the ultimate source. Listen to Jesus himself in Matthew 23, verse 23, when he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees? You hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. You should tithe. Yeah, but don't neglect the more important things. See, again, he's calling them hypocrites the exact same way Amos did. Saying that you're playing around with little details and ignore the most important stuff, okay? Yes, tithe, that, that's right. Yeah, you should do that. I'm not saying you don't do that. I'm saying you're missing the big picture. It's like saying don't feed the dog when your house is on fire. The takeaway isn't Jeff saying that you shouldn't feed your dog. So no, when your house is on fire, you've got other important things to worry about. This is what Jesus is saying. saying, look, I understand you're tithing with herb gardens and, and with the nitty gritty stuff. But you're missing far more important details here. And so we have to accept that when we look at it biblically, justice is important to God. So as good citizens, we must speak. We can't remain silent, but we must do it in a way that affects change and blesses everyone. The Bible ultimately uh, boils down our attitudes towards people into one of two categories. That's all there is. We either love our enemies or we, sorry, we either love our neighbours or we hate our, our neighbours. It's that simple. We're either living to bless our neighbours or we're not. So we honour and respect those in authority. But how should Christians engage with society when we disagree with the law? By getting involved. Paul calls us to be good citizens. I think good citizens are engaged in their city, seeking its good, as Jeremiah said. I think we should be engaged with the political system. I think we should be involved in school PTAs, council schemes. We should try to fill positions of influence to represent God in those areas, whether it's schools or councils or whatever it happens to be. Now, as a church, whether it's as individuals in the, in the congregation or as a body, we can't possibly campaign on every single issue. We have to be wise and prayerfully consider where we focus our resources. And we have to be careful about which organisations we endorse because they may not all fall in line with what we believe. Because we can't ignore our primary calling, the good news of the gospel. Yet we can't ignore this command either to be involved. So let me be clear, social justice is not the primary function of the church. Our message is not of social justice. Our message is of divine justice. So for the believer... Justice has to begin in repentance. John Piper wrote that this is because we can't ask God to uphold just part of his justice on earth. To bring justice to the unborn or to refugees or to those who profit from abortion. Or, or just bring justice on the men who traffic women in prostitution. Or, or, or just those who um, 
relish uh, racial discrimination and hatred. The idea is that we can't start treating sin according to what is trendy at the time and pick and choose where justice can come. To call on God to move against wrongdoing means all wrongdoing. So we can't just say, look, you know, let's cut down on corruption. Oh, but me stealing Wi-Fi or Netflix. Well, that's not corrupt. That's not stealing. Oh, sorry. It's not bad enough to count. Listen, the Bible tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all have to own up to this sense of lack of justice. Yet what we can see from the cross is that justice can only be satisfied by Christ himself. Therefore, we will never see real justice and a real end to hatred apart from him. Which means the Christian alone in this world can seek justice with eyes wide open. And we must do calling on God to bring justice without hypocritically pointing to some injustices out there while also trying to hide our own prejudices and my own comforts and my own pride. Because Colossians tells me that those he set aside, nailing them to the cross. We're not supposed to be tossed about by trending social justice topics, whatever is the flavour of the week. When we seek justice, we know what, what it is that we're asking for. We're asking for the real justice of a real God who really hates sin. And we seek this justice with an unflinching hope anchored in Christ. The risen Christ reigns. And in the words of Isaiah 42, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So let's be careful. For to love our neighbour, that means then more than just providing food or shelter or money. People who aren't saved can do that. But if that's all we seek to do, then all we do is make people comfortable on their way to hell. God's not impressed with that kind of love from his people. Just doing stuff for people, distracting them from their eternal need, never angling at that need, not caring about that need, just doing what they think love will look like. Listen, if we're not helping people to see their need of Jesus, we're not really loving them. You can call it whatever you like, but biblically speaking, we're not loving them. And if you're not using all those practical helps, which we should be doing, but using them with a view to awakening their hearts to see God as their treasure and their saviour, we're not really loving them. Now, we could go on further about dealing with what justice should look like, but there's too much to unpack now whether it's issues of racial discrimination, abortion, welfare, healthcare, the environment, immigration, the definition of marriage, poverty, Brexit. Have you biblical views on all of them? Where do you fall? Because Facebook and Twitter streams have become a social war zone with articles as the ammunition fired between all the different ideologies. And it can get quite vicious. Because it's not enough just to point and point it and say, look, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. But it's not enough either to come alongside a victim and arm around them and say, oh, this is terrible. We must love the victim, build them up and show them that healing and freedom and forgiveness and peace that they need can be found in Christ. 
But at the same time, we are also loving those who have committed the great injustices of this world, loving them enough to look past their sin, past their hard heartedness and past their apathy towards all and love them enough to convince them of the justice and peace and love and forgiveness and grace and life abundantly found in Christ. Let me just finish by reading Paul's words as he closes off Romans 12. One of my favourite chapters in the whole Bible. It's just so wonderful. Let me just pick up verse 12 of Romans 12. It says, rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to be good citizens. Lord, help us to live a way that points people to you. Lord, so often we, we're we tempted to believe things as Christians, but never really speak out about them, to never really contribute to the conversations that are going on. And we'd rather just avoid an argument or avoid the hostility. But Lord, to be a good citizen means that we are to speak up for those who need to have a voice. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be sensitive, help us to be wise. Lord, help us to be tactful, help us to be loving. But, Lord, I pray, help us not be apathetic, but energetic in these things, passionate in these things. Lord, that you might delight in our heart for justice. Lord, that you would be delighted by our anger of sin and wrongdoing. And, Lord, we pray that in all these things, Lord, you would be glorified, you would be magnified, you'd be honoured in how we live. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.